So what a great weekend. Are, are you feeling full? Is your head full? Is your heart full? Um, I know mine's overflowing. I know this has been good for my soul. And it's been said, but especially after this year where we're reminded of our smallness and our fragility and that we're not in step with so many other people around us. Hasn't it been lovely to be around so many aiming at the similar main things? <clears throat> so thank you to the team and for everything. Thank you for the hours that you've invested in planning and coordinating and spreadsheeting. And it's a word and emails and research for setting for the weekend, that's no small thing. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for staying true to the calling that you have received and for listening and thank you for sharing. We are definitely leaving fuller than how we came. I am leaving fuller. Thank you. So I uh, thank you too for the chance to be able to share. This is a joy for me. And I'm no Mason expert. I'm no scholar. I'm just me. So I'm a husband and a dad of this crew. So in, we'll have to get an elevator talk for backpacking because we've had a few ask. So this is my clan. And... Uh, but it's just me, just me following Jesus and serving the ones he put in my life. And this past year actually has been pretty difficult, right, on so many levels. I don't know if your world's like mine, but it seems wherever I looked, things are stretched. And um, suddenly we all have to walk delicately in relationships that used to be unquestionable. And, uh, well, just all of it. So there's been all of that at home, but add pastoring into the mix. I pastor a small church. I don't know if you've heard, we're looking for people. <laughs> so I don't know if you knew this either. Church world's been a little weird. And so um, all the things that should unite us, all the brokenness came crashing in and all of the hurts and everything else. And so, um, yeah. So I don't know how many times over the past couple months sitting at our breakfast nook, I've said to Amy, I'm, I've just got nothing more to say. I've got no more words. And, um, and then the way that always seems to happen, I stumbled on this book that I didn't know I needed. I didn't actually even know that it was coming out. I was just going through my Audible feed looking for um, something and like, oh my word, this. Anyone familiar with the musician, author, awesome homeschooling dad, Andrew Peterson? Yeah, well, I'm bringing him in. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe you know this song or his song, Is He Worthy? has become a staple in so many of our churches. Uh, anyway, we in our home love Peterson. His music's become just a soundtrack to so many uh, big seasons in the life of our family. And so this year, he released this book called um, Adorning the Dark. Um, 
And, and in that, he writes on thoughts on community and calling and the mystery of making. It's this great book. And, and it just, it made me think of y'all as I was thinking about myself in this, that I'm not a songwriter, but we create. All of us are created in the image of a creator. And so it spills out, right? In, um, in an early chapter, Peterson transparently writes about the process of writing a song. He says there's a hint of a phrase and at first it's mostly gibberish but the suggestion of a melody, maybe there's something there. So he gets, you get your phone out and re, you record a small bit and then you move on. Then he says you skip ahead a few days and now you have your guitar on your lap and fear and self-doubt are taunting ghosts at each shoulder. And you try to find some combination of chords that doesn't sound like everything else you've ever played and everything else everyone else has ever played. Which, anyway... But after 20 minutes, you're sick of yourself and you're sick of your guitar and the weather and your lack of talent, he says. And then with a thrill of hope, you remember that voicemail message that you left yourself and you listen and you're disappointed. It's not terrible, but it's missing whatever magic it had before. And with nothing else to do, you try and find the chords that that mumbling melody wants and you play it through on the guitar a few times in standard tuning, key of G, and then the same four chords that you learned when you were back in high school or in eighth grade, and then you capo it up and you try a different voicing. And that sparks a melody that suits the gibberish a little better. And like a dying man in the desert who discovers a cactus, you get just enough juice to keep crawling. But then he says, Oh God, you pray. I'm so small and the universe is so big, what can I possibly say? What can I add to this explosion of glory? My mind is slow and unsteady. My heart is twisted and tired and my hands are smudged with sin. I have nothing, nothing to offer. Write about that. What do you mean? Write about your smallness. Write about your sin, your heart, your inability to say anything worth saying and watch what happens. And watch what happens. God, this is my watch what happens. You know where we're all at. You know what we're going back to. You know each of us to the numbers of hairs on our head. Nothing surprises you. You know just what we need and I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, that you'd help me get out of the way, that I would say what you'd have to say, but more than that, that you'd put in our hearts what you want to say. So in your name and for your glory, amen. So we should probably start with the universal given. Uh, we have all faced doubts. Our children have faced doubts. We will yet face doubts. And doubt often comes unsolicited. So I didn't know that I would have the opportunity to face down some doubts while in the Holy Land. Figured I'm going to take this study trip in 2019 and it's going to be awesome and all these places that I've been soaking in since I've been forever are going to come alive. And so we were standing on the top of the ruined city of Lachish. This is a map of, Jerusalem, or of, of Israel. You can kind of hopefully get a mental. And so we're standing on the top of the ruined city of ancient Lachish. And actually the hill looked like a lot like the prairie that we were in just recently. 
And, or it could have been one of the hills shaped by the glaciers on the Ice Age Trail that our family gets lost on all the time. And, um, but it wasn't. These were destroyed ruins of the last of Judah's cities to fall to the Assyrian Empire when King Sennacherib and his army of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands swept down from the north in 701 BC like every army has to do come down from the north. It's not Russia. So right away, you come up to what looks like a pile of rubble, okay? So you get off of your tour bus, if you're lucky, and you come off the parking lot, which is like right here, and then you come up, and it's, there's this pile of rubble, and then there's this huge towering hill. And what you see is this, this it looks like just like a scatter of rock, piles of rubble. And actually, this is what archaeologists originally thought it was when they began excavating Tal Lachish. They thought it was just a random pile of rubble. But actually what this is, is it's, it, it is the Assyrian siege ramp. One of the only remaining weapons of war of one of the worst empires ever to be on the earth. And so as we were kind of walking up the hill, there's a path on the left here and then you come to the ruined city gates and then you can come on into the city. But our tour guide was pointing out to us this siege ramp that goes up to the top, the highest point on the city. In this like, you know, you have all these thoughts. That's weird. Wouldn't you like build it to the lowest part, highest part? Were they weird back then? And then you realize it's the highest point. Why? Because they were tearing down their own homes and structures to build up the walls of the city where the Assyrians were building the siege ramp. And in a very real instant, there we were, and we were hearing this. And so we're standing up on top of the city and um, in 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 listening to this and there's actually archaeologists have uncovered in those burned out uh, gates uh, pot shards uh, pottery from the destruction of Lachish that that was written by those who were in terror for their lives looking out and seeing the flags and the banners and the tents knowing that their kids and their life was about to and you can read about this and we and we read some bits of it. It's 2 Kings 18 and 19. It's 2 Chronicles 32. Lachish falls. Sennacherib sends his envoy to Jerusalem to tell King Hezekiah that he's next. And then you've got this incredible narrative in Kings and in Chronicles and Isaiah 37 where the king knows he's doomed. He knows he's doomed. He's prepped some. I actually got to go through Hezekiah's tunnel. It's awesome. Let's L.E.R. there. <laughs> Forget the Lake District. No, I'm just kidding. We have to. Just kidding. <laughs> Did I say I'm not an expert? So King Hezekiah knows there's coming. He's prepped some. He's built some of the wall in Jerusalem that's been uncovered. But he just, he, he knows they're doomed. And so he goes to the temple and through the prophet Isaiah prays. And, and the prophet Isaiah hears from God and, and speaks to him. King Hezekiah knows that if God doesn't intervene, it's all over. And God speaks, and he says, you will not fall to this army. I will rescue you. They won't shoot an arrow. They won't bring a shield. 
It was amazing. And our really super smart biblical scholar, I was, the trip I was on uh, was, was with a bunch of folks from Ireland, which just made it all the more legit because it was like everywhere around you was just accents of awesomeness. And so our super cool uh, guy who was leading the trip, he gave us all of this and our tour guide pointed some stuff out and then our biblical scholar, a buddy of mine, said some things. And then our super smart trip leader um, standing on top of the ruin of Lachish reads this. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold His cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold, and the sheen of the spears was like stars on the sea when the blue waves rolled nightly on deep Galilee. Do you recognize Byron? Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, the host with their banners at sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strown. The angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed on the faces of the foe as he passed and the eyes of the sleeper waxed deadly and chill and their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still. And there lay the steed with his nostrils all wide but through it there rolled not the breath of his pride. The foam of his gasping lay white on the turf and the cold and cold as the spray of the rock beaten surf And there lay the rider, distorted and pale, with the dew on his brow and the rust in his mail. And the tents were all silent, and the banners alone, and the lances unlifted, and the trumpet unblown. And the widows of Asher were loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. This is recorded in Isaiah 37, not this, Lord Byron takes it. That would have been weird. <laughs> it's Isaiah 37, it's, it's um, 2 Kings 18 and 19, it's 2 Chronicles 32. There's not real great art of this, so sorry we're not going to picture study it. But So there we are, it's, it's top of this. Just we're reading scripture, we're in this place, we're living it. One of the pot shards from one of the soldiers said, we've lost the signal towers from the, from the, from the city just up the way from us. It's a total Lord of the Rings moment. Why? Because the Assyrians have quenched it. And they were there and he reads this and it's like, oh my word, it's electrical. And then the really smart guy on the trip says, that's a great story, but that probably isn't what really happened. And it was like, hmm. Doubt we will all face, and it usually comes unbidden. So, what do we do with it? See, the thing is, is, is in, in our lives, our students, our kids, they're going to have doubts come into their life. They're going to have these moments of trying to figure out what's real and do I really believe this? Or is this my faith or is this my family's faith? Or 
So some of this is, hopefully most of this is going to be Mason. A sprinkle into this might be Jason. And so, but it's interesting that the more I dug into this and soaked on this and the more it, it just resonated what Mason was saying about doubt and how to process and what that means just was like, yes. So I don't know. What things have you doubted? What things come unbidden into your life that you've had to process? Nothing. <laughs> None of us have. What things are the things in our students' lives that they have to process, that they have to go through, that they have to doubt? That they're going to doubt? It's interesting, in my mind, we were going to have this big <laughs> God's provision, yeah. And it's okay. It's okay that we don't. Maybe there's just a bit of, honestly, in a culture that blasts all of the questions that it has as far as it can because the questioning is the awesomeness of authenticity. Maybe there's a sacred closeness that we should hold some of the doubts that we have. So do I believe this and what does that mean? And so um, in ourselves, in uh, Mason's volume four, and I don't have a quote for this, but to paraphrase her, she essentially says we need to be careful in introducing doubts. So maybe there's a little bit in this where it's okay that we didn't just whiteboard 29 things. Because she says, once a doubt takes place, it's like an injury that can come back at any time. And we're going to circle back to that because I think it's a really, well, there's, there's some big in it. But even with that, that do I believe this? Do I, what do we do? And so some of the doubts, some of the things you've walked in here with doubts. And, and I wish I had three hours because then we'd question and answer. And I'd totally answer all your doubts. Because I am an oracle. And that is a lie. <laughs> but there's not nothing that we can do about our doubts. And see, I, I guess I'm not actually smart enough to know if Nason, Mason was comfortable with doubts or not. And so this is Jay. But your doubts um, now in, in well, other reflectives say are super important. Mason says this, she says uh, that preparation, the, uh, but there's much to be done beforehand, though nothing when it comes. I, I don't all the way agree with that. I do agree with it. But there is a, if you, I, I don't agree with this as a tweet. <laughs> but I agree with this in relationship with Miss Mason. Because on first pass, this sounds very hopeless to any of us who have olders or ones that we love who are in the throes of doubt and you look back and so it's just nothing but what I could have done. 
So I, but I don't know that's what she's saying. In, in fact, I think she's, she's encouraging those who are not yet there to take the now for real. Because we're all going to be there. You were there for your parents if you grew up in a home of faith. So in a gathering and in a retreat like this, we've got folks from all different places, kids just starting off, parents looking for just the right book list, not quite knowing what a living book is yet. I wish someone would define that. Well, it's kind of... And that's awesome. See, we've got families rounding the home stretch in here. We had a panel of, of graduates. And we've even got those of you who are in the next generation of this who still come around because you want to invest in because you know someone was there for you. That's awesome. Anyone ever been ziplining? This is me, just kidding, not me. Anyone ever been ziplining? Where'd you go? Wisconsin Dells. Costa Rica. I knew that would happen. That's awesome. Win, bonus points. Anyone top Costa Rica? Yeah? Backyard. Someone else said Peru? You guys are going to have to duke it out. Yeah. Wouldn't it be awesome if we didn't have to have this conversation, that we could just be at the top of the mountain, clip our kids into the zip line, it'd be super exciting and scary, but totally controlled, and they'd end up exactly where we wanted them to be? Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. Some of us have carried undue weight from this proverb. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Start, a child, start children off the way they should go, and even when they're old, they're not turned from it. I threw all these translations on there because sometimes I get in trouble for it. They all say the same thing. Any of you had to deal with this in your own life? I'm betting you've probably heard somebody referred to Proverbs, but especially this is one of the promises of God for your children. Don't be mad. It's not a promise. Jay, I thought you were going to talk about Mason and doubt, and you sound like... The Proverbs aren't promises. They go well on coffee cups, and they should. They're God's truth, but they're not promises. A promise is something that is guaranteed and that works in every setting. God loves you, created you. John Piper says all Proverbs are true, but they are not always true in every situation. A proverb isn't a promise. It's the best way to live. Proverbs aren't promises. They're the best way to live. And so... We've all been there, right? We know that verse, raise up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. And then somebody that you have not idolized, but kind of in your church has a kid that goes off the rails. And then you got to process that, and it's like, what's going on? And then somebody throws that verse, and then it's like, oh. It's not that that verse isn't important. It's the best way to live. Raise your child up in the way of the Lord, and when they are old, they won't depart from it. But it's not a promise. See, if it was a promise, well, then 
Solomon who wrote it. <laughs> right? My Bible nerds just... Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was the dude who split the kingdom. Solomon wrote that. If it's a promise, what? And so I don't know where you're at this morning. Or morning, I'm preaching. Afternoon. <laughs> it's night service. I don't even know when I started. This is not good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're carrying in with you. If you're here and you're carrying weight because the promise isn't working in your life, that is an undue burden. And we could have a theological discussion. I'm not driving home tonight, so let's get a cup of coffee after, and I'd love to sort that out because there's a lot of theology in there. But I'm telling you, Mason, though, in, in, in this, doesn't leave us on our own. There's two volumes we're going to kind of soak in, Parents and Children, Volume 2, one of my favorites, and then Volume 4, Ourselves, and then we're going to touch Volume 1, and I've got way too many notes and way too many pages, so we're going to see how this goes. But in Parents and Children, on page 41, Mason says this. Parents are revealers of God to their children. She says it's probable that parents as a class feel more than ever before the responsibility of their prophetic office is as revealers of God to their children that parents touch their highest limitations. Perhaps it is only as they succeed in this part of their work that they fulfill the divine intention in giving them children to bring up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There is a lot in there. Anyone else feel the weight of revealing God as we interact with our kids? So parents, Mason says that yours is, ours is a prophetic office. Now, it's easy to have your head go to crazy town or YouTube preacher or prophet of whatever. I don't know your background. <laughs> when you hear prophetic office. But listen, let me just give you some street-level handles on prophet. Prophet isn't future-telling only. That's where we like to go because we want to know what's going to happen. Prophet is one who speaks truth into the moment. And so parents, God has given you the office of speaking truth into the moment of your kids. Grandparents, you're not off the hook. We all have people in our world's littles that God has called us to speak truth into their moment. And here's the other thing. We also have this office for ourselves that we know God's truth and sometimes hear this, my soul. So these are the weight of the words that we feel as it is as revealers of God that we touch our greatest limitations. Eugene Peterson, though, says it's not easy to convey a sense of wonder, let alone resurrection wonder to another. It's the very nature of wonder to catch us off guard, to circumvent expectations and assumptions. 
This is the money shot. Wonder can't be packaged and it can't be worked up. It requires some sense of being there and some sense of engagement. So the question for us, and we're going to dig into the three things and what Mason has to say, and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's not a heavy yoke. But the question for us is, are we connecting our children to God with a sense of mystery and wonder or a checklist? And I've done it. Let's get through this Bible thing for breakfast because dad's got to go be a pastor. And so then the question is, am I engaging God with a sense of mystery and wonder? So what does Charlotte Mason specifically have to say about doubt? I'm glad you asked. This is volume two, chapter five. So it's called How to Fortify Them Against Doubt. Isn't it great how Mason does that every once in a while? (laughs) Not every time. Sometimes I have to skip to the end, read what she says, and then rewind because I know that's where she's going. And I know that's not very Mason-y, but that is me. <laughs> so here's what she says. How to fortify the children against the doubts of which the air is full is an anxious question. Three courses are open. To teach as we of an older generation have been taught and let them bide their time and their chance. To attempt to deal with the doubts and difficulties which have turned up or are likely to turn up. Or to give children such hold of vital truth that, and at the same time, such an outlook upon current thought that they shall be landed on the safe side of the controversies of their day, open to truth in however new a light presented and safeguarded against mortal error. So let's just do this. Let's unpack her three ways. Again, because... There is much to be done beforehand, but nothing when the time comes. Asterisk, the Holy Spirit can do what the Holy Spirit's going to do in the midst of doubt. Amen from the phone. (laughs) Here we go, first path. To teach as we of an older generation have been taught and to let them bide their time and their chance. This can be summed up with the good luck. Good luck. This is how I did it. My parents dropped me off at this class and we did this and then I was done with that or however it worked. This is how everyone has always done it and that's how you're going to do it. There's a growing number of grew up in the church kids who have deconverted from Christianity. There is a militant deconversion movement. The trouble is, in my world, this is Jay, is that the platform they got to be able to have so many followers was from in the church and then it was so like are you smoking what you're selling but whatever <gasps> can't say that dang it <laughs> I think Mason gives us the reason why they're so angry this is within that first good luck She says that attack's going to come into their life or doubt, and when the attack comes, they find themselves at a disadvantage. They have nothing to reply. Their pride is in arms. So they jump to the conclusion that there is no defense possible of that which they have received as truth. 
Had there been, they would have would they have not been instructed to make it? They resent being made out in the wrong. Being on the weaker side, so it seems to them being behind their times, and then they go over with a struggle to the side of the most aggressive thinkers of their day. There's no aggressive thinkers of our day. We're in luck. We don't have to worry about any of that. <laughs> What's she saying? She's saying that folks who grow up with a mindset of faith on good luck are going to find themselves in conversations where they're going, why didn't anyone? And they feel foolish. And they get angry. And I'm telling you, you're probably the same as me as I have people in my life. And their doubt moved to anger. And then rejection. So how many have seen somebody go down this path? See, we raise our kids to love God and to love their neighbors, and then a certain type of neighbor gets brought up and what it means to really love them and then love them like Jesus and like a loose thread on a knit sweater, it gets pulled and then everything just starts to unravel. So what's been the response to do nothing, good luck? Well, there's much to do beforehand. So we're going to do the much beforehand or at least a different way of doing the much beforehand. It's to attempt to deal with the doubts and difficulties which have turned up or are likely to turn up. This is the second path. So the first path is good luck. The second path is, here we go. I'm going to give you it all. Listen, this is Mason. This is not Jason. Although I'm 100% with Mason on this. So if you got a beef with her, let's giddy up. And Art, actually, you helped me connect the dot on this solidly so you can tell how wet the ink is on this part with your talk on Mason and a philosophy of science this morning. So could you come up here and just repeat that whole part about science <laughs> being for the children to discover the truth and that's right where they're waiting for them to know it and it's ready for them to discover and... It's not the answers that the authorities have predetermined for them to get to. That'd be awesome. Was that a, that was it? Got it. I'm telling you sometimes. See, we cannot buy into the Christian industrial machine that says the way to make sure your child doesn't walk away from their faith is not just to attack every doubt of the day, but every doubt that might be coming their way. Take them and put the answers in their head, even though they may not have the questions, that then they will be ready when it's there, and then they'll be guaranteed that they won't walk away from faith. I'm no expert on classical anything, but this sure feels very classical. Here's the doubts they're going to have. Fortify them against those doubts by giving them every answer to what those doubts are. Some of you are not my friend right now, or actually, you are my friend, I'm not your friend. 
As a youth pastor, I would get all kinds of material into my inbox that said, buy this for your youth group so that you can go through this series for your teenagers so they won't walk away when they hit college. The trouble is, is so many students walk away when they hit college because they were never in, so they're not walking away. But it's also the thing they're walking away from is not living. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's just an idea that they're rejecting. Because someone more aggressive or someone smarter in the room did the smart bomb doubt that it nailed all of it. Or just enough. And see, the Christian industrial machine says just buy this product and work through this curriculum and then your kid's going to be fine. It's there now. It was there in the 80s. I have all kinds of parents in my church who carry guilt and weight from thinking if they just focused on their family the way Dobson said they should, they'll guarantee their kids are going to be. And it's not how it works. It's not that that's bad. It's not a guarantee. See, and they're out there, right? I mean, the books abound. I probably have a lot on my shelves. Evidences that demand things. Stuff like that. <laughs> but all of that sounds like a different system of education. Is there anything wrong with apologetics? No, but true apologetics is giving the reason for the hope that we have when we were asked. That's what Peter says in his letters. Not necessarily shotgunning every possible reason for the hope that others might need to know for themselves. That actually sounds like a little bit different system of education than a Mason education, yet it's what we're being sold because the stakes are super high. And I mean, this is about our kids' faith, right? This isn't about like, I hope they get that geometry thing. So this is for real. And I don't know if you knew this, but fear is a super good way to get money out of your pocket. And I'm not saying that's the intent of all those places. But good night, that's a good motivator. To get to a camp, to get to a seminar, to get to a whatever. Too many of us have led to believe that if we can just get the right uh, things into the, our kids' heads for all the reasons to not doubt and all the answers to the questions that are out there or could be out there, then they won't ask those questions. But Mason says, evidences are not proofs. Children should be taught Bible history with every elucidation which modern research makes possible, which is fun because her modern research is our old-fashioned research, but there it still is. But they should not be taught to think of the inscriptions on the Assyrian monuments, for example, as proofs of the truth of Bible records, but rather as illustrations of those records, though they are and cannot be subsidiary proofs. This is a whole rabbit trail that, do I, can I do it? I can't do it. Amy won't let me do it. It's on Amy. It's not me. Archaeology sometimes lines up with Scripture. Sometimes. Archaeology does not always line up with Scripture. I don't know what you've heard. Most pastors are not archaeologists. We just read things. We repeat things. 
But I can tell you, one, more than one Old Testament site from Dan to Beersheba on this tour through, we'd stand in front of a place that I knew the story and the place didn't line up with the story. And then you go, what? Is it like secular and they're just not wanting to? And see, the thing is, is well, there's some things we're going to get to, but if you're on, you, you don't know if you like me right now, the Bible's not trying to teach us history. The, try, the Bible's revealing God. And so if the Bible is just to back up some history, we're missing the point of it. It's not what the ancients would have done with it. And we're torturing it into a place that I don't know that God wanted it to be. And that can go on a lot of different things. Let's get a cup of coffee later. Jay, you don't have time for any of that. Archaeology sometimes lines up with the story of Scripture, but sometimes not. Okay, real quick. I don't know if this is what Mason has in mind. But in uh, the book of Daniel, uh, the writing on the wall, Belshazzar is listed as the son of Nebuchadnezzar. You could check my math. Uh, Belshazzar is not the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He's, there's generations in between them, but that's okay because we know that in genealogies, it's not son of always is actually the son, and so that's why mathing, genealogy, is not the best idea. But anyway, uh, scholars said, well, who's this Belshazzar guy? He's actually not even the king. What's going on? And for ever until the early, well, about 100 years ago, that was, they didn't even know this guy existed and so it didn't line up. And then they found this thing up in Assyria and they're like, hey, uh, actually Belshazzar is listed as the son of whoever and it lines up and it brought some stuff into focus and everyone was like, archaeology always matches the Bible. And then they used that. But when we were standing at Jericho, all of the signs there said that when the Israelites came in, if we use the dates that are there, this place was already in ruins. And I was like, no, it wasn't. What do I do with that? And maybe that's the thing we don't have time for, but there's maybe a couple different kinds of doubt, right? There's the doubt on is this true? There's the doubt on did this happen? And then there's the doubt of how and why did this happen? And Mason doesn't touch on that, so we can't touch on that. But just listen, evidences are not proofs. And that probably touches into some really deeper things. But the list of proofs isn't enough. It's interesting. You'll win some Bible trivia. Anyone do sword drills, can super fast get to wherever in the Bible? If they just do that, then they'll know. We're doing the best we can. It's not beating up on folks. They love God and they want their kids to love God, but there's a better way. There's a better way. Oh, wait. Oh, man, that's all. Okay, let's do this. Third path, ready? It's to give children such a hold upon vital truth that it, the same time such an outlook upon current thought that they shall be landed on the safe side of the controversies of their day, open to truth, and however new a light presented and safeguarded against mortal error. 
It's interesting in this that it's their controversies of their day and the ones writing books that get published may or may not even know the controversies that are there because they're TikToks so fast. And so you're like, hey, what about this? And they're like, we're not even talking about that anymore. And it just feels... There's something huge in this. So in... in, in Writing sermons world, there's this thing where you go to first mention. Jesus at Passover does these really cool things. What's the first mention of Passover? It'll help illuminate what's going on there. So you rewind back into that and you see what it is. I'm not saying Mason scripture, but first mention's a cool thing. First mention of vital truths is this. This is volume one. Now, of the vast mass of doctrines and precepts of religion, this is super wordy, get your pay attention hat on. We shall find that there are only a few vital truths that we have so taken into our being that we actually live upon them. This person, these or that person, those, some of us, not more than a single one, one or more, these are the truths that we must teach the children because these will come straight out of our hearts with the enthusiasm and conviction which rarely fails to carry its own idea into the spiritual life of another. There's no more fruitful source of what it is hardly too much to call infant infidelity than the unreal dead words which are poured out upon children about the best things, holy moly, with an artificial solemnity of tone and manner intended to make up for the want of living meaning in the words. Let the parent who only knows one thing from above teach his child that one thing. More will come to him by the time the child is ready for more. Full stop, the end, let's take the offering and go home. You catching it? I mean, first of all, in that is a warning to any of us. Make sure what's coming is living. If not, it's just... And we've done it. I've done it with my kids. I've, hey, did you know this about Jericho? And my kids are like... Well, I had people on Sundays listen to me. Let the parent who only knows one thing from above teach his child that one. I've got a guy in my church, he knows a ton about God. But the one thing he knows is that he's beloved. I'm telling you, anytime he begins to talk about his father, God, you just know we're going to slowly move through this because he knows God. See, I don't want my kids to know how to answer big, deep questions. I want them to know God. So I know there's a lot in that. And originally, this actually, well, there's a lot in this. So let's unpack this super quick. These are, if we keep reading in this, Mason tells us what the vital truths are, or at least, you know, in her way, she kind of inches you into it and then's like, now go do the thing of more. And so these are, right after talking about vital truth, this is what she says is vital truth. God is the Father, he's the giver. 
Loyalty to a person who is Christ our King, Jesus is our Savior, and we have the indwelling of Jesus. I'd use language a little different, but I can't. But Mason's giving us the figurehead of God. This is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What is the vital truth? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So if my kids, when we're talking about things and working through things and they have some doubts and they have some questions, if we can get to God and they can walk away with God, then they're going to be able to walk into the controversies of their day, which may or may not be the same controversies of mine. But if I can get them, nope, not going to do that. Okay. Get to your notes, Jay. The essence of Christianity is loyalty to a person, Christ our King, she writes in Home Education. Here is a thought to unseal the fountains of love and loyalty, the treasures of faith and imagination bound up in the child. The very essence of Christianity is personal loyalty, passionate loyalty to our adorable chief. We have laid other foundations, regeneration, sacraments, justification, works, faith, the Bible, any of which, however necessary to salvation, in its due place and proportion, may become a religion about Christ and without Christ. I love theology. I will talk doctrine and theology and nerdiness all day long. And none of that carries the weight of what she's saying. Am I giving my kids doctrine? She says dogma is great, but dogma leading to dogma, leading to dogmas, maybe not so great. Mason's super dangerous. I don't know if you guys know this. And super on our side. How many times has your eyes rolled during a Sunday where you knew you should really, but man, we're talking about regeneration and the words are super big and they're, and you're just kind of wondering. Gee, I don't know if I like any of this because all these things are super important and necessary for faith. And our children will come into it as they need it. Not as I determine for them to do it. What about catechism? What about this? What about... I'm a Pentecostal. I have no idea about any of that. <laughs> Just kidding. They play a role. They play a role. They play a role. But Mason goes on. Okay, there we are. So in chapter 15 of, of Ourselves, 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 the book that we give our upper level kids or our, our kids to read and we read with them because it's for the parable of character growing and, and who they are and it's this beautiful thing that like wigs out dads who aren't quite sure about Mason yet. Ourselves, the book we give our students, right? That's right, we do that, right? We do do that. I don't know, Jay, it's hot in here. You lost me 25 minutes ago. I'm on page 
10 of 11, so we're doing great. In Ourselves, the book we give our students. She says, the thing that matters to us in the Bible stories is their essential truth. All godly people, okay, pause. So she talks about accidental truth and essential truth. I thought I had a slide for this, maybe it's coming. Accidental truth are the things that are involved in the story. They're the, they're the place, they're the date, they're the people, they're the numbers, they're what kingdom, they're what, they're, they're, they're true in the story, but they're there. The essential truth, though, is the thing that the story is about. It's the thing that the story is leading toward. It's the, okay? So, the thing that matters to us in the Bible stories is their essential truth. This isn't a disconnected from truth or even disconnected from the actual, okay? But it's, it's, it's a different thing. You'll get it. All godly people have known the walls of Jericho to fall before their faith and the trumpet blast of their prayers. They have known seas of difficulty which threaten to overwhelm them, divide to them, and go forward. They've heard the voice of the Lord in the cool of the evening speaking to the quiet and obedient hearts. And they know out of the experience of their own lives that by means of song and story, psalm and prophecy, the Bible reveals the way of God with man and, that, and all that there is in the heart of man. These are the things that matter. So they are quite ready to wait the verdict of critics as to whether a certain narrative records facts that took place in a given year. Whether such a book was written by one man or by two or a woman. All this is deeply interesting, but has nothing to do with the essential permanent truth, the revelation of the otherwise unknown about God and about man, which stamps the several books of the Bible with the divine seal. I'm sorry, but this is in ourselves. And I know this is a thing that we wrestle with as adults. Was the flood universal? Was the flood in just a region? Was the flood just a me metaphor and a myth? What about... Mason invites our kids into this. And she trusts that the Holy Spirit, who is the co-teacher with you and the revealer of all truth, is going to reveal to the students what they need to know. And so when you do the story of creation, which is an awesome epic narrative poem, also awesome epic narrative poems in other ancient Middle Eastern stories, other Eastern, Near Eastern ancient cultures, I don't think it's really about when or how, but who. And who is always an essential truth. And see, this is taken, maybe it's a bit of a, in, in, and there's a lot more we could do with this. In home education, so let's get out of ourselves. Our kids, okay. Oh, but stink, she says this. As for whether such and such a narrative be a myth or a parable or a circumstance that has actually occurred, such questions do not affect the sincere mind of a child because they have nothing to do with the main issues. Holy moly. So 
So last year, the year before, one of the years, the year before, pre when the world fell apart, we went through the book of Pro, uh, Psalms as a church. And we didn't avoid the Psalms that contained some pretty ugly things. One of the most beautiful Psalms in all of Scripture ends with like God kicking their teeth. And we always like quote it up to and then we leave it off like, ooh, that wasn't, that was weird. (laughs) And see, Mason's inviting us to realize that some of the things in Scripture, even though all of Scripture is God-inspired and good and useful for teaching and correction and rebuke, Timothy says, some of it is not true. Some of it's not true. And I don't mean some of it like the virgin birth, some of it. But I mean some of the historical things that are taken. King Sennacherib's envoy to Hezekiah when he says, you are going to be undone just like every other kingdom. The Lord of the heavens and the Lord of the hosts are the same Lord that we've just wiped out, wiped out, wiped out, wiped out. Is that true? No, it's not true. It's not true. See, we need a robust bringing in to, okay, we don't have time to do all of this, so I'm just going to invite you to read. But Mason says that revelation is progressive and it's the revealing of God through the whole of Scripture. The Old Testament is necessary for the revealing of Christ And then from there, the epistles and the acts of the apostles is the living out of the revelation of Christ. But then she says that there are words in the Bible that are not true, and she quotes the kick in the teeth. There's a huge amount in this. but we are being invited into, actually all of that, it's in uh, book two of ourselves, it's in the 14th chapter, some instructions on conscience and theology. There's some great stuff on interpretation and on what role theology plays in the lives of the students. I could just give it to you, but then I'm giving it to you. You should read it and mark it and interact with it and digest it. I missed one. Learn it. But don't miss that this is in ourselves. When that hit me this past, a couple weeks back, it was like a full stop. Because see, essential truth and accidental truth, that's fights that happen in the church between adults who know smart things. And yet Mason's just like, hey, the child will get what they need to get out of it and don't pry bar in what you think they need to get. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it, and there you will find rest for your souls. Here's a couple real quick, and then I got to close. Just uh, if you're looking, I, I am a drug pusher on the Bible story handbook. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you need this book. You also would do well to buy anything by John Walton, professor of Old Testament around Chicago. 
Bible Story Handbook, it's a collection of these 175 stories from Scripture where he and his wife unpack, give cultural context, say these are some things that are difficult. Maybe stay away from that, especially for a younger mind. This might be too much. And then uh, here's the main things. And it's wonderful. Another is this, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. So this is, it talks about genre and it talks about uh, how we got the texts and what we do with the texts and it's just this fantastic read. Jay Patterson Smith has some stuff on how we got the Bible too if you want to go Charlotte Mason because she liked him, he's not safe, okay. Here's another from kind of moving on, I guess they found a money pot and are working it. How to read the Bible book by book. So this one's a little bit, a little bit like a commentary. It's, a, it's, it's helping with these are the genre a little bit deeper on some of these. We should read Ecclesiastes different than we read Mark. Nothing new under the sun. Really, Solomon, did you have an iPhone? <laughs> right? Right? But man, there's nothing new because of the wickedness in the human heart. And so anyway, so that's a good one. And then another, I said, John Walton, Lost World of Genesis 1. This one will mess with your head. But Walton does this great job of saying, look, this is what was going on culturally in the ancient world. This is what was happening in Mesopotamia. This is what was happening up in Assyria. This is what was happening in Egypt. This is how this narrative may be influenced by that narrative. This is a myth. This is not a myth. What does that mean? It's great. Jay, you said you can't, like, pour in all these things. I know, this is just a living book. Just read it. It's good. And then there's these other ones. I don't know. You, you, they can't be pink, though, right? Are, are we still on that? Is it okay if they're pink? No? Yeah. I don't know. I took this from someone's blog. <laughs> <laughs> Another, if you're a visual, the Bible Project is my jam. It's not always safe, but the point isn't safe. And Tim Mackey studied in Madison, so there's that. This is great. You're going through a book, listen to it, what's it about? pre-leading in five to ten minutes on here's historically what's going on here. Here's some themes and some flow of this. Not telling you what it is, but just, a, hey. There's a ton more. There's just so much. And if anything, hopefully this is a bit of like leading into this, some things that we can do. Remember that Mason specifically tells us that the vital truth is God himself, which seems to resonate with other things she said. Like the whole point of education is the knowledge of God. So parents, as you are digging into this stuff, you are touching your limitation. And you can only reveal as much as you've experienced and encountered, and that's not a weakness. She says that's actually a strength, and so stay in that place until more you've experienced or know are revealed and then the kid will need it in that time. Eugene Peterson, 
says this, the way of Jesus cannot be imposed or mapped. It requires an active participation in following Jesus as he leads us through sometimes strange and unfamiliar territory in circumstances that become clear only in the hesitations and questions, in the pauses and reflections where we engage in prayerful conversation with one another and with him. None of us want to enter into doubt. None of us want our kids to be there. None of us want... But it comes. It comes. And so in its coming, rest knowing that if you are soaking in the narrative of Scripture doing your best to reveal to your kids in your own imperfection, in your own weakness, in your own, this is who I know God to be revealed through his word. Here's this. Take and eat. So we're standing on Lachish and he reads that and then says this probably never happened. And since then, I've wrestled with it a little bit, but not that much. Because whether Jerusalem was rescued because the angel of the Lord came down and wiped out 185,000 in one night, which is what the narrative says, which is what I think says it happened. Or whether God used Hezekiah pulling things out of the temple to bribe Sennacherib to leave, which is also in the text. And that's how he left, that God used that or whether it was unhealthy conditions in the camp, which some folks say, none of that matters. Because the essential truth is that God heard the prayers of his people, and the vital truth is that God provided. So, a little bit of this for all of us as we engage this, is let's just watch what happens. Trusting that the God that we serve is big enough to work even through our failings and stumblings. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The world has always been out there. The doubts might be new, but they've always existed. All the way back into the garden. Don't be afraid. May you co-teach with the Holy Spirit in algebra, in nature study, and in Hosea as God reveals himself to you and to your kids through you. Yeah. In all of this, I'm probably wrong on a little bit. But as you read and mark and learn and digest, as you meditate on this and the other things that you've heard this weekend, on the points where these connect, on maybe where they seem in tension and you're not quite sure about it, on the things and the conversations that you've had with others, that that has been the whole retreat. You needed that late night at the lake with that person who God spoke through to you. In all of it, May we be still and know that I am God. 
scholars say that that psalm, that that verse came out of, it's called the psalm of, uh, I forgot it, but they said that that is from King Hezekiah, spoken after the Lord delivers them. It's amazing. So be still and know that he is God. And may we teach our kids to be still and know that he is God. Let me pray a blessing over us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for this week. Lord, thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself to each one of us in this. Not some floofy, out there, disconnected, maybe, thing that gives us ideas of things. God, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. You are the almighty Lord of hosts. And you have called us into this place and in this time for the interactions, for the solitude and the things that you've spoken, for the conversation over a meal, for the things that were read, for even the stuff that's going to happen between here and when we re-engage our littles. You are God. Lord, for the ones who maybe came here feeling the weight of a loved one in a place of doubt, God, I pray that this would be not a burden but a reminder that you are working and in, in, in a nudge for how we can work with you. Lord, we do pray for the prodigals that we love. We lift them up to you, knowing that you know them so much more intimately and are wooing them back to yourself. So let your will be done. God, as we re-engage, may we re-engage with a sense of you and your kingdom and your kingdom coming. God, let your will be done. God, thank you for a season, for a moment of restoring and for pausing. And God, as we go from this place, may you be glorified through our lives as we do our best to serve you. Jesus, we just want to hear well done at the end of this. Show us how to get there. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray.